0: It's a great privilege to be able to share the good word of God with all of you. Uh, One thing that I, I want to emphasize the desire to please God. The desire to please God. In our daily lives, the desire to please God. In our daily lives. It comes from the Holy Spirit in us. We experience the joy of the Holy Spirit in us. He is the one who moves us to desire. He is the one. And our desire, as born-again Christians, children of God, our desire is to please God. Our aim, our objective in life is to please him to glorify him to enjoy him so the title of my sermon is our aim is to please the lord the text is in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 through 21 2nd Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 21. Let us read. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to, to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore We might become the righteousness of God. The uh, three central points in this passage that we will consider are first, as born again Christians, it's our aim to please the Lord, not only because we love Him, not only because we are eternally grateful. Not only because he is worthy of worship and glory, but also because one day we will stand before him and all that we have done, whether pleasing to him or not, will be revealed. The purpose of this judgment will be to glorify God. This is very important to remember. The purpose of this judgment will be to glorify God. First, for his forgiveness through the blood of Christ, for all that we had done. That was not pleasing to him. And I want to repeat that. We must understand the purpose of this judgment will be to glorify God. To glorify him first for his forgiveness. Through the blood of Christ, for all that we had done that was not pleasing to him, we will glorify him. Second, we will glorify God for the works of faith that he carried out through us, which will serve as evidence of our justification through Christ. He will be glorified. And third, we will glorify God when by his grace he will reward us for those works of faith that were pleasing to him. Therefore, considering these things, considering the great day of judgment, we not only strive by faith to please the Lord, but we persuade persuade others to be reconciled to God through the gospel. So that they too may live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Let's consider the second point. The desire to please Christ must come from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Any desire that does not come from the Holy Spirit comes from self-centered ambition, self-righteousness, or both. People motivated by these desires do not reflect the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, because such love is not prideful. It's not self-seeking. Such love controls us and moves us to no longer live for ourselves, but to please Christ. To please Him in our daily lives. Let's consider the third point. We view each other not as the world views us, but as those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, our risen Lord. We view each other as children of God who were born again according to his sovereign grace, born again to glorify him and live for Christ. And as we live for him, we serve him as his ambassadors. Ambassadors who have been entrusted with the ministry of evangelism. Therefore, we must encourage each other to not only live for Christ. Not only serve him, but to also share the gospel. Acknowledging that God is pleased to call sinners to Christ through us, his ambassadors. As born again Christians, it's our aim to please the Lord. That's our aim. Not only because we love him, not only because we are eternally grateful, not only because he is worthy of worship and glory, but also because one day we will stand before him. And all that we have done, whether pleasing to him or not, will be revealed. In verse 9 of the text, Paul wrote, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. By starting this verse with the word soul, we understand that this verse relates to what Paul had previously written about our temporary bodies. And that although we groan and and are burdened while we are in these bodies, we look forward to being with Christ in heaven. Therefore, we are always of of good courage and And we make it our aim to please Christ. Now, let's consider what Paul meant when he wrote about believers who groan, who are burdened in their temporary bodies. In these bodies, we tend to complain about physical pain, especially when you hit age 50. We complain about exhaustion, illness, aging, dealing with difficult people, But this is not what Paul meant. What he meant was that while in these bodies, we groan in anticipation of that day when we will be present with our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We understand this because in his letter to the church in Rome, he referred to an inward groaning when he wrote, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grow Inwardly, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Considering this, we understand that in verse 9 of the text of today's sermon, Paul is saying that although we may groan in anticipation of being with our precious Lord in heaven, we are always of good courage. And we desire to please Christ in our daily lives. And in verse 10, Paul gives us an important reason why. Why should we be eager to please Christ? He wrote, for, in other words, because, we must all appear before the judgment seat where each one of us will receive what is due for what we have done while in these bodies. The question that comes to mind is, in what ways were we obedient to the word of God as servants in his kingdom while in these bodies? More specifically, what did we do with the gospel? The gospel That was not only given to us, but entrusted to us to share it with others. Regarding this, John Gill wrote that God has committed to us, or put in us, the message of reconciliation, the gospel, as a rich and valuable treasure. For such the doctrine of peace and reconciliation by the blood of Christ is a sacred deposition committed to the trust of faithful men to be dispensed and disposed of for the use and purpose for which it is given them. We'll consider this more in verses 18 and 19 of the text. For now, it's good to understand that one of the ways we demonstrate our eagerness to please Christ is to share the gospel. Now, going back to verse 10 in the text, let's consider the topic of the judgment seat of Christ. It's an interesting topic. Some theologians believe that the sole purpose of this judgment is to determine the rewards that we will receive for our works of faith, the works carried out by the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us. And uh, as support, they use verses that refer to storing up treasures in heaven, Christ repaying everyone for what they have done, the testing of our works by fire, which will resort, which will resort in rewards. Or loss. And the parable of the good servant who successfully invested the minus that were given to him, and who heard the words Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Pretty compelling. Others believe that the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is to test the good works of both unbelievers and believers. According to this belief, those whose works were not produced by faith. The faith through which sinners are saved will have no evidence of their salvation due to the absence of saving faith in their lives. And this will confirm their condemnation. But those whose works were produced by faith, the faith through which sinners are saved, will not only possess the evidence of their salvation, but Peter wrote that the genuineness of their faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Regarding this, Paul also wrote that when Jesus returns, he will bring to light The things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And lastly. Others believe that both believers and unbelievers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that every thought, every intention of the heart, every deed whether good or bad, will be revealed. In other words, the sins and and good deeds of both the believers and unbelievers will be revealed. But for different reasons. For the unregenerate, the purpose of their judgment is to glorify God's justice when their sins are revealed and their condemnation confirmed. But for those who were born again, all of their sins that were forgiven by the blood of Christ will be revealed to glorify God's love, grace and mercy for an eternity. Very interesting. We notice that all these views, these three views, involve glorifying God. Now, which one of these views is correct? Which do we adopt? It'd be safe to believe that all three are good. Because each one glorifies God. First, it is probable that all of our sins, that were forgiven by the blood of Christ through faith alone, will be revealed to glorify God's love, grace, and mercy. And His sovereignty. Second, God will be glorified forever when our good works of faith, carried out by the Holy Spirit in us, will serve as the evidence of our salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, the work of Christ on the cross alone was sufficient to save us from the punishment of our sins. And third, God will be glorified when we receive our reward for the works of faith that he, by his grace, was pleased to carry out through us. The privilege to work in God's kingdom is by his sovereign will, through which he chooses who will work. He enables them and works through them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Regarding this, the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote, May God, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Sometimes we might think, Understanding the Reformed Theology. I don't deserve anything. We don't deserve anything. We don't deserve any reward. Isn't Christ sufficient? Isn't the grace of God sufficient? That we would expect rewards? No. Christ is sufficient. The grace of God is sufficient. It is all well with me. But. God in his sovereignty. If he wants to reward us. For the work that he did through us. Who are we to tell him no. Who are we to say. uh, No that's that's all right. Really. Who has the courage to do that. So we say. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. God loves us so much. It's not difficult to understand when we truly understand the sovereignty of God. It's not difficult when we truly understand His love for us. His love for us, eternal, for us, unconditional love for us, His children when we understand truly the love of God, when we understand truly His sovereignty, the rewards that we're going to get, there's no problem. You know, this topic has caused some controversy, but why? It's all good. Considering all these things, we can understand why Paul wrote, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Keeping the judgment seat of Christ in mind as we fight, the good fight of faith in our daily lives can encourage us to sin less by faith in Christ. To live a life that is pleasing to him. In verse 11 of the text of today's sermon, we read, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. In other words, not only having reverential fear of God as a father who disciplines his children, but also fear of his great and final judgment. Paul concluded, we persuade others. Now, what did he mean by we persuade others? We persuade who? To do what? Considering the context, which refers to Judgment Day. A day when all will appear before Christ. It's likely that Paul meant, we persuade sinners to trust in Christ. Regarding this verse, John Gill wrote, They endeavor to persuade and encourage poor, sensible sinners to venture on Christ. And believe in him to the saving of their souls. Now the only way they can do that, them poor, sensible sinners, the only way they can do that is by first hearing the gospel. And the only way they can do that is by someone presenting it to them. This is what Paul meant when he wrote, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? When Paul said we persuade others, we understand that we persuade others to obey the gospel, trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior, repenting of their sins and following him according to the scriptures. We understand this because in the text of today's sermon, Paul, three times referred to the sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection. And in the third time, he wrote that we are ambassadors entrusted with a message of reconciliation, the gospel. Now, some may say Paul was referring to himself and, and, and the ministers that worked with him. Okay, that this may be true, but didn't Paul say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ"? Didn't he also say, I urge you then, be imitators of me? For those who believe that it is not the duty of every Christian to evangelize may have a difficult time answering the following question What valid excuse do any of us have for not sharing the gospel? What valid excuse do any of us have for not sharing the gospel? A few months ago, I watched a video on YouTube in which Penn Gillette, a very famous entertainer, who's an atheist, shared a story about a man who handed him a New Testament. Penn said that he truly respected that man, appreciated what he had done, and thought he was a really, really good guy. And the reason was because Penn believed that the man was truly concerned about him and cared enough about him to try to convert him. But then Penn said that he did not respect Christians who don't proselytize. Mind you, this is an atheist who don't share the gospel. He then added, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that there's a heaven and hell and that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Considering this, Balaam's donkey comes to mind. If God opened the mouth of a donkey and made it speak, why couldn't he do the same to an atheist? Now, I understand that there is no revelation outside of Scripture. This comment regarding Balaam's donkey was only made to demonstrate the irony of an atheist message to Christians. Let's now consider the second point of the text. The desire to please Christ must come from the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Any desire that does not come from the Holy Spirit comes from self-centered ambition, self-righteousness, or both. In verses 12 and 13, Paul was writing in response to the mockery that he received from unbelievers in Corinth and from the false teachers. Uh, Many said he was crazy because of the doctrines that he taught and his unyielding devotion to Christ. In his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul commended himself, not by using external sources, but by his character, by his conduct, and his unwavering commitment to the truth, and his genuine concern for the church in Corinth. Although many may think that we, as Christians, are strange, we're brainwashed intolerant and any other derogatory term. It's important that we always reflect the goodness of Christ in our character and conduct. Regarding this, Paul in his letter to the church in Philippi wrote, to act as blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that, and here it comes again, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Notice the reference again to the day of Christ. Um, Peter, regarding this, Peter also wrote, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. You know, the ones that call us crazy. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here we go again. On the day of visitation. In verses 12 and 13 of the text, Paul explained that his intention was not to commend himself again, but to encourage the Corinthians to respond to the false claims that the false teachers in Corinth were making about him. He referred to these people as prideful, religious people who did not understand the new covenant. Why? Because they boasted about their external worship, which old covenant leaders, like the Pharisees, had placed much emphasis. Remember, love comes from the Holy Spirit within us. It controls us. It moves us. Paul explained uh, that the motivation of these false teachers in Corinth did not come from the heart, but through external religious obligation alone. Paul contrasted this with that which comes from the heart of a true born-again believer. And it is the Holy Spirit that works in us, enables us. We simply reflect the goodness of God. And this is by His grace, because it pleases Him. As we all know, the desire to please Christ must come from the Holy Spirit. That dwells within us. Any desire that does not come from the Holy Spirit comes from self-centered ambition, self-righteousness, or both. And those who are moved by such desires do not reflect the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love. Because such love is not prideful. It's not self-seeking. Such love controls us, moves us. It moves us to no longer live for ourselves, but to please the one we love, Christ, because he loved us first. What is the definition of love? To sacrifice yourself for the welfare of another and not expect anything in return. And you get joy from seeing them happy. For those of you who are wondering, what is love? Paul wrote, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is love. Now, when others, especially those who don't know Christ, start noticing that we are committed to living a life that is pleasing to the Lord, and we demonstrate that we no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ, they tend to start forming opinions about us. Opinions that are not very nice. Or they simply stop associating with us. Now, it's important to clarify that the reason they stay away is not because we have a holier-than-thou attitude. In fact, they may think highly of our character, but simply stay away because we don't enjoy the sin that they do. We don't participate in it like they do. And this is uncomfortable for them. Many believe Paul was crazy because of his passionate devotion to Christ. Others simply made false claims because he spoke against their old covenant beliefs or or their pagan worship. And this offended them greatly. And instead of debating with Paul, they simply claimed he was crazy. In verse 13, Paul wrote, For if we are beside ourselves... For if we are besides ourselves, meaning if others think we are crazy for serving God, it is for God. Meaning it is for the glory of God. If because of our devotion to Christ, we suffer ridicule. God is glorified. Because it is by his grace that we have the privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ. Being called crazy. And... um, We must understand it's a great privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. It is by his grace that we suffer. Pretty hard to understand. If you don't understand God's grace, his love, his sovereignty, his purpose, his perfect will. Not only are we privileged, we are also blessed. Luke refers to this when he wrote about the apostles who, after being beaten by the Pharisees for preaching the gospel, left the council rejoicing that they were found counted worthy to suffer dishonor. Rejoicing. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's sake. Today, many Christians face persecution for evangelizing. And like the apostles, they rejoice in the Lord, experiencing the joy of the Holy Spirit in them. And they don't stop. They are threatened with punishment, imprisonment, death. In verse 14, Paul wrote that the love of Christ controls us. Now, we may ask how or why does it control us? Well, in the last part of verse 14 and in verse 15, Paul answers the question. Because we have concluded this. Notice he says, because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, and here it comes. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We live for him. We live to please him. We love him because we understand what he did for us. We don't deserve it. What we deserve is hell. We don't deserve what he did for us. Such a great sacrifice of a perfect man. The man God, Jesus Christ, God the Son. Perfect, perfect, perfectly beautiful. Perfectly righteous, perfectly good. Tortured, slowly, murdered in our place. And we had nothing to do with that. It was by God's sovereign grace, through his love. We deserve hell. But by God's grace, we receive favor. By his mercy, we're saved. That alone is sufficient to love Christ. And how do we love? What's the definition of love? Sacrifice. And get joy to see that he is pleased and not expect anything in return because that's an investment. That's not love. Um, Unfortunately, many believe that Christ died only to save us from hell. And they're very happy with that. I mean, who wouldn't be? And as a consequence, they view him as a great fire insurance agent. They view him only as their savior, but demonstrate by their lack of obedience that he is not their Lord. Christ died to save us from the eternal punishment of our sins. But let us never forget that he also died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's uh, go to our third point. We view each other, not as the world sees us, but as those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, our risen Lord. We view each other as children of God who were born again according to His sovereign grace, born again to glorify Him and live for Christ. And as we live for Him, We serve him as his ambassadors here on earth, his representatives. His representatives, his ambassadors who have been entrusted with the ministry of evangelism, the message of peace between man and God. In verses 16 and 18, we understand that we view each other not according to the standards established by popular culture, which places great value on anything that satisfies the flesh, but according to the word of God. We view each other as those who are no longer controlled by the power of sin, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are new creations in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that all this has been done by God through the sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Here we understand that we, by faith in Christ, no longer allow sin to dominate our lives. Evidence of a true born again Christian is his love for God and love for the church. We love because Christ first loved us. This is the love that controls us. Our precious Lord said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Considering this, if anyone claims to be a born again Christian but continues to live in unrepentant sin. He or she has not understood the gospel, has not valued the gospel has not understood the love of Christ and demonstrates no evidence of his or her salvation. Regarding this, the Apostle John wrote, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And those who have been born of God will also love the church. This love will move them to not only bear each other's burdens, but to also be concerned for their spiritual welfare. For example, if a church member sees another member fall in unrepentant sin, he will love the member so much that he will not ignore the situation, but will, out of love, which much humbleness and gentleness, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. In verse 20 and 21, Paul wrote that uh, he wrote what he had preached to anyone who would hear in verse 20 and 21. Paul was an evangelist. We know that. He was an apostle and evangelist. In verse 20 and 21, let's read it again. It's one of my most favorite verses in all Scripture. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Considering these things, God commands us to share this good news. It's good news. Do we as human beings want anyone to go to hell and suffer eternal torment? Do we want anyone to experience that torment? God commands us to share the gospel to persuade others to trust in Christ as their Savior, to repent of their sins, and to follow Christ as Lord of their lives according to the Scriptures. And our aim is to please the Lord and persuade others to do the same. In conclusion, let's let's review the the main points. As born-again Christians, it's our aim to please the Lord, not only because we love him, not only because we are eternally grateful, not only because he is worthy of worship and glory, but also because one day we will stand before him and all that we have done, whether pleasing to him or not, will be revealed. Paul's aim was to please Christ. Our aim should be to please Christ. Second point, the desire to please Christ must come from the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Any desire that does not come from the Holy Spirit comes from self-centered ambition, self-righteousness, or both. And the third point. Well, I also wanted to add something to the second point. People motivated, I mean, people motivated to preach, to minister, who are motivated by self-righteous desires, self-centered ambition, do not reflect the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because such love is not self-centered. Such love is not prideful. Such love does not boast. It only wants to give without expecting anything in return. Such love controls us to move us to no longer live for ourselves, but to Please Christ. And the third point. We view each other not as the world sees us, but as those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, our risen Lord. We view each other as children of God who were born again, according to His sovereign grace, born again to glorify him and live for Christ. And as we live for him, we serve him as his ambassadors. Ambassadors who've been entrusted with the ministry of evangelism. Therefore, we must encourage one another to strive to please Christ in every regard and to be obedient, to remember we are ambassadors entrusted with the gospel, to do something with it, share it. We thank God for his word. We thank God for his mercy. Let us pray. Precious Lord, you are worthy of all glory. You alone, our triune God, are worthy. You are perfect in all that you do, you are perfectly beautiful. Almighty. You are perfectly good. Your love is perfect. Your will is perfect. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your son Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. Help us, Father, to remember your commands. Help us, Father God. Strengthen our faith. Give us more grace so that we may be obedient to your word for your honor, glory, and purpose. Have mercy on all of us. We thank you, Father, for all that you have done through Christ. We realize that he is sufficient, that your grace is sufficient. But we glorify you for your goodness and your love. We desire to please you. Help us, Father, work in us, prepare us, guide us, and use us for your purpose For your glory, have mercy on all of us. Help us to remember the things we have heard today. Help us to be obedient. Help us to reflect Christ in our daily lives. Help us to live no longer for ourselves but for him and to please him in all that we do. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.